Welcome to the Yellow Brick Therapy Podcast, episode number 12. Today, I interviewed Kylie Armstrong, LMFT, and she's also a sports hypnotist and specializes in sports psychology. She helps people with their athletic performance through hip- hypnotherapy and also CBT and other therapy practices. So she talks all about that in this episode, and it is really interesting. I'm so excited to show you guys this. I also wanted to shout out that she works from McKinsey and Associates, which is here in downtown Wichita, and they have a team of therapists there as well that specialize in so many different things. So I wanted to share that with you and also to let you know that I'm going to be giving you guys a little bit more information after this podcast about summer recovery, so stay tuned after the show as well. All right, let's go ahead and get into the meat of the show. We'll go ahead and start with our first four. What did you want to be when you were young and you were thinking about your careers? What did you want to be when you grew up, so to speak? I wanted to be a veterinarian. Okay, when so I you was really little. Yeah, so you had a love for animals. I'm yes, guessing? very much. My grandpa had a farm, and so we were always, you know, playing with the new puppies or the kittens. And yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Do you have any animals now? In your home? I have a Doberman. Mm-hmm. So big, so sweet. hundred pound dog. He's yes. goofy. Yeah, um, and then we have a hamster and some fish. Nice, mm-hmm. very nice. So you've kind of collected some animals right. along the way. Mm-hmm. For sure. Awesome. So, how did your dream for being a veterinarian evolve into you being a marriage and family therapist? That um, I think definitely, as I went through high school, I think that's when I took my first psychology class, mm-hmm. and so. I knew then that that was interesting to me. It was just a class that I liked. Um, And so when I went into college, I think right off the bat, psychology was kind of what I knew I was going to major in. Mm -hmm. Um, So the whole veterinary school thing kind of fell to the wayside, you know, as I approached those high school years. Right, and you just kind of found interest in In other topics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so did you have a psychology undergrad? I did, Oh, no worries. Yes, so I got my psychology bachelor's at UMKC. Okay. And then I minored in Spanish, which has not been useful. No, no. I felt like, you know, the Spanish that you learn in school is not, I could not hold a conversation with a native fluent speaker, so. Yeah, Um, that's tricky. I Well, I also took, like, throughout my, like, middle school, high school, college, I took seven years of Spanish, mm -hmm. so I should be fluent, but I'm not. And so I can ask a few things, and I feel comfortable enough, like, when I went to Ecuador, I felt comfortable enough getting around and asking questions, but, Mm -hmm. gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Different world. I can say that, yeah, I use that at all in my my career at all, but, um, yeah, yeah, and then I, I actually applied for my master's in social work and did like a semester at KU for that and Mm -hmm. quickly realized social work was not for me. Okay. Left that program. Um, and then the next year is when I started at friends. Mm -hmm. So, and it was very different right off the bat that that first intensive week, it was about doing therapy, Yes. uh, which is what I wanted. And even the clinical route in the social work program, the whole first year was very much social policy, had nothing to do with clinical work. Mm-hmm. Um, I see what you're So saying. it just wasn't for me. Yeah. No, and I, I mean, it's kind of relatable to the sense that, like, I 
was originally in another marriage and family therapy program Mm -hmm. in Colorado, actually. And I won't go into the full details of exactly what was going on because I don't Mm want to say all the stuff that was going on for them. But like the long story short was um, the clinical director left that year. Mm -hmm. I was doing research and I was in an office for 12 hours a day. I was not doing any sort of clinical work. And it was a really tough decision for me to leave that program after a year because, you know, I'd worked my best. Yeah, I was invested. I worked my butt off to get there. Um, And I just, you know, I had that game plan in mind. And then when I found that like clinically it wasn't serving me or feeding me in any way, um, I left it. And then when I went to friends, it was kind of interesting because it was so clinical at first that it was almost uncomfortable. Right. I was just like, oh my gosh, where, where's the research? Like, where can I hide behind papers and studies and mm-hmm. information? But they definitely work on your self as a therapist there. Right. So mm-hmm. not that we're doing an ad for friends, but, <laughs> but it was of. such a good program. And for sure. um, definitely the people and the professors there made the program amazing for mm-hmm. me and my experience of it. So It was for me too. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, the second question is what has been, I call it your worst, but really it's your most like learning moment in therapy. My most learning moment. Or one therapy. of your worst ones that you kind of remember learning from. Mm, that's so hard to pick one. <laughs> Probably when you have those angsty teens who just refuse to talk. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, this is going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember one in particular back when I was at the community mental health center that I worked at before. And the foster mom had brought her in and said right off the bat, she's not going to talk to you. She's already said she's not going to talk. She wants nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that whole first session, she just kind of sat there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I did that whole thing of trying to engage her and trying to ask all the different questions while she just sort of stared at me. Mm-hmm. Um and then I think it was the second session she came in, and I just didn't engage it. And I just said, you know, you can use the time however you want today. I had noticed that she had some earphones, and so I said, you can listen to music, you can lay down, or we can talk. Um, and she chose to lay down and listen to her music, and we literally did not talk the entire session. Mm. Um, but the next time she came in, so our third session, she talked mm. the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a, a matter of learning just not to engage in that power struggle. Right. And to just meet the client where they are. Right. Yeah. And I think sometimes giving them that power like you did when you were like, you get to choose mm-hmm. how you do this, where it sounds like a, like a lot of my teens too, where it's like they are kind of forced into therapy sometimes by their parents. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you were able to give them their power back, which is really cool. Right. And I think necessary for those those types of clients. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, I think if I had continued to just try, that she would have continued to resist me right. and be defiant. So Right, right. Well, that's great. I think that's very helpful because I'm sure a lot of people um, that are listening have worked with teens, whether they're a therapist or they have teens at home, you know? So it's definitely relatable and um, lots of angsty teens in therapy. I myself was an angsty teen in therapy, so I have some empathy for that population. Right. Yeah. Well, very cool. So tell me, I want you to brag on yourself a little bit. What was your best moment in therapy? Oh gosh, my best moment in therapy. Or a moment um, that you look back on and you're like, yes, this is why I do what I do. 
I mean, I definitely, I feel like those moments happen often if you look for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but just even um, this week, I had a client, super high anxiety, just look at me and say that she was so happy that she has this, like just our relationship to come in and have somebody to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just been, you know, a handful of times where somebody has really just reflected that and just seeing how relieved or meaningful it is to them is when I have those moments of this is why I'm a therapist, you know, just to be somebody's person when they need one. Um, but also when I have athletes, um, tell me that they have gotten scholarship offers or they're getting scholarship letters and they're super excited. I love sharing those moments with them. Yeah. Especially in the specific work that you do Mm -hmm. because you're helping them, you know, you're helping them therapeutically, but you're also helping them in their passion. Right. So that's really cool. And then the last question is kind of a silly one of the first four. It is, what is your spirit animal? My spirit animal? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I feel like I would have to pick a horse. Yeah? Just because I've always loved them and how graceful they are and kind yeah. of majestic. They are. They are very graceful. That's really cool. Um. Awesome. Well, I'm going to delve into asking you some of the questions that for me popped up. I, I'm not an athlete by any means that I can like say the word athlete, but I Mm -hmm. do perform in CrossFit. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I even was talking with some of, I asked some of my peers in CrossFit Mm -hmm. too, because we think a lot about performance and our, you know, what that means to us psychologically, because so much of it is what's going on in here and in the brain. And so, um, I just want to learn a little bit more about, like, you telling us what work you do with, mm-hmm. you know, athletic performance, hypnosis, what that means, any sort of misconceptions people might have about sure. it. Um, just kind of introduce us to what you do. Okay. Well, that's – and one thing that I always start with clients is sort of demystifying what they know about hypnosis. And mm-hmm. so I ease their mind that it's not, you know, the silly things that you see on TV or in comedies. I don't have control over their body. It's just simply a relaxed state. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first part of the hypnosis is where I just get them sort of, we go through a, a passive muscle relaxation exercise, get them into a relaxed state of mind. Um, and then I go into an individualized hypnosis script where it's full of kind of their own language and terminology that they've given me about their sport or what particular skills they're trying to master what sort of confidence or self-beliefs that they need to have to perform well. Mm-hmm. So I incorporate all of that in there. And we work on basically three different um, types of scripts. So we do attitude of a champion, um, motivation to practice or train, and that's when somebody's really specifically dealing with burnout. So mm-hmm. a lot of college athletes struggle with that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then just um, general performance. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. That's neat. I was just thinking about that. My partner was a college athlete, and Mm -hmm. he experienced burnout for sure. And I remember just being like, it's so interesting to see that how that Mm -hmm. happens for people. And um, I was not a college athlete. (laughs) I just did stuff for fun. But, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm sure you see a lot of that. And then you said the first one was about 
um, the attitude of a champion. Mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say the attitude of a champion? That's when we really get into teaching mental toughness. So being able to, you know, bounce back from maybe mistakes or errors during a game or a tournament or a routine mm-hmm. and just automatically be able to shift your thoughts back to what's next um, and not emotionally reacting to maybe negative thoughts that pop up. Mm-hmm. So we actually do a lot of kind of CBT in the work, so training mm-hmm. them about reframing thought-stopping skills um, and eventually just getting them to the place where they have those skills that work for them or those automatic sort of phrases that they use mm-hmm. so that they're not reacting to that kind of stuff and getting frustrated. Could you give us an example of some of those phrases that they'd use to kind of help with those automatic reactions? Um, So for some people, it's going to be something just simple like let it go, Hmm. Um, relax, refocus. Um, It's different for everybody. I've had some teen athletes um, say things like, you know, keep your head in the game, Mm -hmm. um, get back in the game, next play, things like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Actually, our CrossFit coach at one point, um, his whole mantra that he was trying to get us to all think about was, you can do hard things. Mm -hmm. That was one of them. And that's that's actually been something where, I mean, obviously, there's deeper work that you do with the hypnosis, but even him saying that was helpful for us to kind of keep that thought in our brain as we hit up against anything that we're, you know, challenged Mm -hmm. with, is that you can do hard things. I can do this. I can do hard things. Um, So that's really cool. Well, I'm I'm curious, um, what are some of the, like, I don't know if you see any trends and, like, the types of specific issues mm-hmm. that you see people struggle with? Oh, for sure. Probably the number one trend is going to be just that um, external pressure that athletes get, and usually it's apparent. Mm. Um, a lot of times, especially with high school kids who are having those dreams of getting college scholarships, and parents obviously really want that for them. Um, But a lot of parents really do a lot of harsh criticism, maybe like after a basketball game or after a baseball game, and they're pointing out all of the errors and mistakes the person did, Mm. um, and they really get down on themselves. And I've had athletes just tear up and cry, saying, you know, I just can't meet my parent or my coach's expectation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's all about being able to kind of like what I ask them to do is try to take take the criticism the person is giving you and try to flip it to a positive. What can you take from it to focus on making yourself better, but then let go of the part that makes you feel bad, mm-hmm. you know? Um, almost trying to reword what they said. A lot of times they don't want me to talk to their parent as far as making it like a family therapy thing. I was about to say, because, you know, the mm-hmm. systemic therapist in me is like, how do you, how do you conceptualize mm-hmm. that, you know, systemically, but... Yeah, I could see that. Right. Sometimes you can if the client's open to it. Mm -hmm. And I've had parents be receptive and kind of change some of the things that they're doing, which is great. Um, That's great. But that would probably be the number one issue. I have had a lot of people um, coming in for recovery from injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, So gymnasts who have had an injury and just have those mental blocks coming back to perform. Mm -hmm. And their body, they just can't make their body do the skill. Um, And so the hypnosis really helps to get them back on track with that, even just sometimes three to four sessions. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And does that help, you know, because this is not like, I feel like whenever I talk about my own issues with like sports performance, I kind of laugh because again, I do it for fun and it's, Mm -hmm. it's more of a hobby for me and I, I do care about it, but 
it can be so minute compared to the athletes that you're seeing. Um, but I had a moment where like I was going up the peg, we have like pegboards Mm -hmm. and I fell and I, I like, um, landed on my, my, the, like basically my tailbone Mm -hmm. and it sent like this huge shock up my body and I was fine. And I went to a chiropractor and Mm -hmm. throughout that week, like I was a little stiff, but it was fine after I went to a chiropractor, got readjusted. It was good. But mentally now, every time I go to the pegboard, I freak out. Like I have that anxiety. And so, um, it's interesting that like, you know, I'm wondering if that way you're kind of referring Mm -hmm. to is like whatever, however they got injured, you're helping them work through the anxiety of kind of going back into it. Yep. So you, you relax them and you go back and sort of just do this guided imagery or hypnosis script about that skill. Um, and making yourself visualize yourself perform it well, the way you maybe did before. Um, and just kind of reinstalling those positive beliefs, positive self-talk, seeing yourself do it. Mm-hmm. And just because of that, that mind-body connection. So with hypnosis, it's all about the concept that the body will respond to the mind like a robot. Um, so if you visualized something enough and you see yourself doing it well, your brain will believe it and your body will do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually they do, they get there where the block, the mental block just slowly kind of goes away. And so their nervous system responds to mm-hmm. that. So right. their nervous system is able to calm down over exactly. time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how long does it usually take for that to happen? I know it's probably going to vary depending on the specific instance, but mm-hmm. what would you like, what's a, an I average mean, typically time? Typically with the sports hypnosis, if they don't have a diagnosis or other completely separate issues that we're working on. I would say usually I only see them for probably five sessions. Okay, wow. Um, so the goal is to essentially teach them how to do self-hypnosis. So after we've done it three or four times, they essentially get the gist of how to relax themselves, how to engage in the, the passive relaxation, how to do the guided imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they essentially do those mental movies on their own then to prep for, you know, whatever performance or tournament whatever they're working towards are going to have to perform and then I'll have some athletes that come back in maybe once in a great while for like a booster session if there's maybe something specific that they um, are struggling with like a batting slump Mm -hmm. and we might work one or two sessions and then they go on their way that's really neat so my my brain is just thinking more about like how this might be applicable on a larger scale um is this something you feel like you could ever do with like a group of athletes or even a team where like you teach their skills? I would love to do that as far as like, you know, maybe doing like a workshop for a team and just having them all come up together and do like some of the basic legwork for the sports psychology Mm -hmm. and sort of like an introductory, um, just a general performance script that everybody could kind of participate in so that they get a feel for how to do that. Yeah, because I'm even thinking about, like, my CrossFit gym because they do Mm -hmm. different workshops, um, nutrition and different things um, along those lines. But I'm like, holy cow, like, how much could people benefit from even just learning the basics basics. of this? If You know, and obviously Mm -hmm. I think if they wanted to go deeper with it or they had a specific intense experience, they'd come in and and visit with you and work through that. Right, and that's what's crazy is – I think I've had one athlete who's come in and said, oh, yeah, my coach does similar stuff as this with us. Most people come in and they 
really have not done or heard any sports psychology stuff. They haven't done any mental skills training. Right. So right. even just those basics, if they apply it, it does make a pretty big difference for them. Yeah. No, I could definitely see that. Um, I definitely feel fortunate that, like, our coach, like, I, we haven't done anything like that quite yet, but I mm-hmm. feel like he learns that for himself, so it kind of comes out in the way that he coaches that, mm-hmm. to me, I can tell that he's thinking about that, even if, you know, he's right. not, like, he's not trained in hypnosis or anything, but... Um, but I could see that he's kind of the exception mm-hmm. to the rule. Like most of the coaching experiences I've had or what I've seen, you're right. They don't really even talk about the mental the part mental of it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's all the, the physical skills and it's all just buck up and, you right. know, do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I even, I, I have a client that I'm thinking I may even refer to you to. She's a volleyball player and mm-hmm. she talks about where she will get stuck in that too. And I know that she's definitely not receiving that support from her coach at this point yeah unfortunately a lot of the coaching styles too are more of that sort of um aggressive harsh and some athletes will say that they need that Mm -hmm. but others even if they're not saying it it's creating anxiety for them fear of failure fear of disappointing team coach family and it does affect their performance right right yeah it's interesting would you say that there's any sort of um difference you see in those types of personalities or or athletes like mm-hmm. where some do better with like the harsher stern kind of coaching and then others do better with something different I definitely feel like male athletes tend to just accept it more mm-hmm. um where it's maybe more socially acceptable I've had some female athletes who have had really bad experience with aggressive coaches like that and it mm-hmm. really sticks with them and affects their performance that's interesting any theories as to why it's a male versus female thing that or trend that you're seeing I feel seeing. like it's just our like our culture or our society that for example you know football coaches tend to be more that way with their athletes and mm-hmm. it just seems like a lot of athletes kind of expect it or just feel like that's how men coach men type of thing mm-hmm. um but I did read something recently I can't remember where um but it basically said that as far as colleges and looking at college programs, athletes are more and more steering away from coaches who have styles like that because mm-hmm. they're not willing to accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, so having a coach that has more of the strengths-based or positive approach is something I think that a lot of athletes are looking for. Interesting. So do you think that's a generational change where the so. younger generation is just kind of perceiving things differently and wanting and are asking for things differently than other older generations. And I hope so, because I definitely feel like, you know, that aggressive coaching style is not the only coaching style. Right. Um, Right. Well, and I'm even thinking, like, from an effectiveness standpoint, like, to me, I'm like, okay, if aggressive works for some people – let's implement it for those people. And then if it doesn't for others, like let's, let's meet them where they're at, you know, but Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, again, not not being in that field, I don't know how that's measured or how that really looks or works, you know? Right. Um, But to me, I'm just more curious about what's, what's actually effective in helping people Mm -hmm. long-term. Right. I can definitely think of a handful of athletes who have said, you know, I just, the burnout is so bad because sometimes of the contribution of that coaching style that they want to quit their sport. They're, yeah. they're ready to give up their senior year or give up potential of scholarships because they just can't take it. Gotcha. I could definitely see that. It's almost mm-hmm. like it's a little too much and a little bit 
not, um, you know, cause for, for me and the way that like I've been able to conceptualize the training that I do is because I, I see it as a long-term thing. Like I see it as like, I just want to be a grandma who is, you know, lifting weights and feels good in their body and is able to do a bunch of stuff. Um, and so I look at it that way versus being like super intense and like hard on myself in the mm-hmm. moment where I see, I've seen even, I've only been doing it for about four and a half years, but I've seen people go so hard, mm-hmm. like for a year and then they fall off and then they might come back for like a month and right. then they fall off because they go like, they have that intensity. They have that aggression right. of like, I've got to be super competitive. I've got to push myself super hard in everything I do. Right, so just the sort of unrealistic expectations and, like, that harshness about what you should be able to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and that kind of brings me... So I had a, a friend of mine ask me to ask you, mm-hmm. um, what would you recommend or how do you work with people when they're looking to utilize the stress that they're feeling while they're working out? Like, mm-hmm. how would they use that stress positively or in a good way? I think it's all about just reframing that internal dialogue. Um, So a lot of athletes have a lot of hot thoughts that are negative. Don't strike out. Mm -hmm. Don't mess this up. Mm -hmm. Why did you do that? Right? Right. Um, And so it's all about teaching them to shift that to be just really consistent, positive self-talk. And so if if it's stress or if it's, you know, being able to shift that as maybe um, energy that you can use to your advantage or... You know, you talked earlier about knowing that you can do hard things, mm-hmm. and that's something. So I am training for a half marathon, and I've always just been like a 5K distance runner, so that's super <laughs> hard. Um, but I do, I have to just, in the moment, when you have that thought pop into your head, like, I'm so tired, I just want to stop, I have to stop, mm-hmm. um, to tell yourself, just legs keep going, you can, you you can your this. body can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just learning just how to shift that and push through those um, initial urges to kind of to stop or feel like you're at your limit. Right, right. And that makes a lot of sense. And I didn't ask this at the beginning, which it probably would have made more sense there, but um, what drew you into wanting to work with athletes and on the sports side of psychology? Mm-hmm. Well, I was a college athlete myself, so I started in, in 4-H really early on with shooting rifles. And so um, my twin sister and I really, like, our coach automatically Mm -hmm. recognized that we had sort of a natural um, ability with it. And so he opened up, like, his, um, like, built a shed in his yard and opened this shooting club. And so there was a few other kids and then my sister and I, and he trained us and worked with us, and we all got college scholarships for it. Um, And so we traveled around shooting competitions um all four years of college and I experienced a pretty great deal of burnout Mm. um you know our practice facility at the school I went to was hard to get to we had to lug our big equipment bags and gun cases like up the stairs and and through the the gym and down into our little hole where we practiced and it was just a lot of work um and my performance suffered because of that and then just we just practiced one day a week and I really felt like if I had had access to a sports psychologist or if I had had any of that mental skills training back then I probably could have taken it a lot further Mm. you know Mm -hmm. and I know our dad sort of had dreams that maybe one of us would like make it to the Olympics one day (laughs) um yeah and so 
I just think not having that is just kind of a bummer for a lot of athletes. And even, you know, like I said, just even three or four sessions of that to be able to totally learn all these skills that you can apply, um, it just would have been so useful for me. Mm -hmm. And I did take one undergrad sports psych class when I was there. And so I think that's kind of what sparked it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And the person who was teaching that class was a graduate student. And she did talk some about how hard it is to work in that field as a PhD. So you have to really be willing to move sort of across the country for a university that might have one position for that open. Right. And so I definitely knew I didn't want to go the PhD route. I didn't really want to teach or be faculty. Um, and I didn't want to have to move across the country. Right. Um, so I just went more the route of becoming a therapist uh, with the hopes that someday I would be able to sort of have that be my niche and, and work with some of those athletes. Um, and so I did a sports psychology coaching certification and the sports hypnosis certification, um, which I feel like allows me to do the same thing mm-hmm. as a sports psychologist. The only sports psychologist I ever worked with, my dad um, one time had this guy come out. I think he was the sports psych at WSU back then when I was in high school. And he came out to our group, our club, and talked to us once and just shared some kind of the basic skills with imagery mm-hmm. and kind of having like a, a skills plan for things. And that was super helpful in and of itself. I felt like I just really would have benefited from a more. lot more of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. And so you said that you have an interest and a passion for potentially doing it on a larger scale and visiting groups I would. at some point, yeah. maybe? Yeah, it's okay. not really something I've marketed. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hard. In the past, when I first started this, I was at the Community Mental Health Center, so it wasn't something I could do there. And so I was kind of going to athletes' homes and doing the sports hypnosis with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it is, though, it's hard to get your name out and let people know what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have found that coaches sometimes are open to it and sometimes not. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've actually felt that getting referrals from parents um, or club sports is kind of the better way to go. So I'm just trying to really work on that as far as just kind of, you know, I do speaking opportunities when possible um, and really start learning how to market to kind of get that out there. Well, I just think you, it sounds like you have such a wealth of knowledge about this and this like specific area. And to me, I mean, obviously I'm biased because I'm a therapist in this field, but I'm like, there's so many people that could benefit from that and so many athletes that... Mm -hmm may have just not even put it on their radar, but I think about, oh my gosh, athletes spend so much money on shoes and supplements and all these other things that like, and they probably don't realize that they would just put a couple of hundred dollars into like their psychology part of it. Mm -hmm. It does make a big difference. Yeah, that it would be huge for their performance. Um, And it actually helps with the whole issue of parents pressuring because they learn how to manage things on their own so they do perform better and then parents can back off and they can relax. so it's actually kind of taking some of the focus off of outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you're also creating like a differentiation for these teen athletes that like, you know, obviously ideally their parents would make changes and they could kind of grow together. Mm-hmm. And if they can't, you know, they're d- building their own sense of self and ability to kind of 
right. work through these issues on their own. Right, and that there and, are ways yeah. you can manage that and work with it. Yes. Um, even if they don't change how they parent or how they talk yes. to you about your sport. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, because you were saying taking what they say and, like, changing it in your own mind. Like, I'm like, that's that's amazing. Like, that's amazing right. work Make of differentiation. Make it be a reframe. Yes. Um, and the really cool thing I found about working with athletes is that they come to me um, sometimes self-pay, sometimes there's no other, you know, anxiety or no disorder present. Um, and so they, they learn these skills and they learn um, the, the cognitive reframing. Mm-hmm. But they they do find, and I had one person tell me that this did change other aspects of her life. She was able to apply those like stress management skills mm-hmm. to school and to adjusting to college. And so they think that they're just working on their sports mm-hmm. psychology, mm-hmm. but they're getting a benefit overall in their their mental wellness and their ability to to think positively and in healthy ways about things. So that's a really cool part of it, too. Yeah, that it can leak into other areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking, too, do you have any, because I've seen this happen for, for people where, you know, in their other areas of their life, they may not be as stressed out or anxious, um, but it's just in their sport or their athletic, you know, sure. endeavors. Mm-hmm. Do you have any theories as to why it's put there? For some people? I think for some of them, it's their, their hopes and dreams about maybe being a pro athlete or getting that college scholarship. And it's so much pressure that if they make a mistake um, and other people are talking about it, it's almost like that catastrophizing type mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of athletes, it really is limited to their their sports world. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then is there like, it, would you have like any top like three things that you would say, you know, for any athlete listening to this would Mm be beneficial for them to know or take away from what you've learned about sports psychology? I think number one would be have an open mind to applying the skills, you Mm -hmm. know, have an open mind to learning how to use breathing techniques or relaxation skills and try it. Um, The second thing would be potentially to, and I do tell athletes this that are looking at colleges, is to ask the players who are currently on the team, if you have the opportunity to, what the coach's style is and if they're happy there. Mm. Um, Because that will change sometimes where they decide to To go. go. Yeah, for sure. And ensure that they end up at a place where they feel like they're a good fit and the coach is a good fit for them. And then the third thing would probably just be um, I guess learning the, the positive self-talk and being able to find their own, I guess, beliefs about themselves and increase their confidence to really tap into that and make it be a consistent effort. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that you can just hear or learn or practice in my office once or twice and expect it to make a difference if you're not applying it um, every week. Right, you're not yeah. myelinating that pathway. Right, they've got yeah. to practice the the mental skills, the mental movies, even if they only spend two to five minutes on it. If you're doing that three times a week, you're really going to increase your consistency and your performance compared to those who are doing no mental skills training. Mm-hmm. So it's all about learning it, which doesn't take all that much investment, you know, three to five sessions, mm-hmm. but then continue to apply it. Right, continuing to engage in that, yeah. Right. That makes that makes sense to me, and I 
I can see how people like the athletes in the space that I work in, like, I don't think a lot of them do any sort of visualization practice. Mm -hmm. So it'd be interesting. Yeah. To ask them about that or to see who does. I think my coach might, I might Mm -hmm. ask, might ask him about that, but, um, but yeah, let's go ahead and, and dive into our last four. Okay. So what is the one thing you wish you knew when you started doing this work? Um, definitely more about how to market it. I Mm. thought, you know, because like you said, I know that there's such a need for it. I know when people look up sports psychologists here locally, I'm one of the only names that pops up, and I'm not even a sports psychologist. I just have training in sports Sports psychology. psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, but yes, how to market it, how to get your name out, and how to get, um, people to just have an awareness that that service is out there. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that's a you know, therapist (laughs) issue, Mm -hmm. I think, especially if you have like a niche you specialize in, it can be difficult to get your name out there or out there at times. Um, What would be the best psychology related book for people in the field or outside of the field? It could be one book or two, Um, whichever makes sense for you. That's the thing. There's so much out there for um, sports psychologists. And a lot of times it's like a whole slew of like cds and um workbooks and all these things and a lot of times i find that it's it's overwhelming it's too much information especially for teen athletes Mm. um so i almost think using like an app some of the apps for relaxation um or apps for logging your cognitions and your thoughts related specifically to your performance is really useful to a lot of the athletes that i work with Hmm. So getting them to tap into something daily to be mindful of, okay, this is what happened and this is how I responded or reacted to it. So is there an app you'd recommend? I use the WhatsApp app with clients. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually mostly used for probably anxiety um, and depression. But I have them focus on the cognitive errors piece. It has a section that gives a really good descriptor of all of them and so I have them initially identify okay which main one are you guilty of Mm. and then they're able to acknowledge when they're doing it and so that a lot of times can shift their brain automatically just by saying oh I'm doing that thing again Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's a diary portion where they can track um, their thoughts or their performance and so I have them use that and bring in examples of kind of what went well what were your positive thoughts that came from that what positive emotions And it helps give good perspective for them as far as how many days during the month did they perform or have positive thoughts about it. And maybe there was actually only a couple that were poor Mm, as opposed to getting in the the negative mindset that I'm always doing this wrong or I'm always performing this bad. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Um, And then what is one of your favorite quotes? Oh gosh, one of my favorite quotes. Or maybe even mantras or words that are meaningful to you. Okay, this is so weird because I'm actually wearing the necklace right now. Um, so it's <laughs> Hebrews 12.1, I think, and it's run with endurance. And so to me what that means, so obviously it has meaning for running because I'm trying to become a better long-distance runner. Mm. But to me it's more about the race of life, you know. And so whatever it is that you're working towards, whether it's a degree or some sort of life goal to run that race that's set before you with endurance. So to be sort of mentally strong or tough. Mm-hmm. So I like that one. 
Yeah, and and like intentional about it, right? right. Where you're not gonna like go out right. of the gate and like you know kill yourself in the first mile if exactly. you're gonna be doing a half marathon. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, that makes sense. Cool. And then what's the one question that I didn't ask you that you feel like would be helpful for people mm-hmm. to know about this field? Okay. Well, I guess one question people have is what What if you're not an expert in my sport? Um, mm-hmm. Most psychologists aren't an expert in one particular sport. And so that's why I ask the client in the first session. So I have them give me lots of details about their sport, what their practice facility looks like, what familiar faces, sights, sounds would be around, um, what are the specific steps or how does it feel when they're performing a certain skill well? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. So that I can include all of that terminology and language in their script so that it's helpful and mm-hmm. individualized for them. And so I don't have to be an expert in their sport in mm-hmm. order to help them. They're the expert in their sport. So they teach me the right words to use for what they need to accomplish. Mm, that makes sense, um, yeah. And so that's something that's really important for people to know. So I've worked with golfers, gymnasts, swimmers, softball, baseball, football, um, soccer. So I've worked with quite a variety of athletes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, my personal sport or history with that really doesn't limit um, the type of athlete I can work with. I've also worked with other types of performance anxiety, so like public speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, My training has that gray area where I can't do clinical hypnosis at all. Okay. Um, So people have contacted me about, you know, smoking cessation, hypnosis, Mm -hmm. weight loss hypnosis, things like that. And I steer clear of that. That is not what my training is. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have helped people with things like test anxiety, you know, Mm -hmm. so high schoolers who are prepping for the ACT and are scared and panicking about it. So um, public speaking, test taking, and sports. Okay. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Public speaking's tough. Right. And for I, most people, I always, or at least for I me, I always it is. tell my clients it's, the, it's like the number one phobia. It's, it's super so common. Funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. And even yeah, even for myself, like I like to get out there and talk to people. I, I enjoy it, but it's always like after the fact, like before. It's, it's anxiety provoking. Yes. And it's mm-hmm. funny. I, I kind of at this point laugh at some of the thoughts. Like, you know, being a therapist, sometimes it's like, look at me being like irrational, you know, like it's just like, it's kind of funny. Cause right. I'll be like, you know, I remember the last public speak speech I gave, like I was talking, I was joking around with my friends and I was like, yeah, before I went in, I was like, you know, if you suck at this one, then you just, you don't ever have to do this again. And maybe you just don't ever, like, it was so dramatic. Like, right. <laughs> like I just made it such a right. big or why am I doing deal. This? Yeah. Why I agree to do this. Yep, and it was just like I was like, wow, I was being such a drama llama before it, and it was totally fine. Right, the nobody was killed, is you know. Worse <laughs> yes. than the actual. Experience. There's no crisis, but right. yeah. So it's just kind of funny how that can end up for some people, but for myself, I'll speak for me. Um, well, cool. Thank you so much for joining me today and letting me pick your brain. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to do this and having me. Yeah, I mean, as an average CrossFit athlete, I like, you know, for me, it's helpful too. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. it on a personal level, but I definitely think our listeners and other athletes um, will benefit from it. I'm definitely going to tell my my whole community and crew about it. Awesome. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you. 
Hey everybody, as promised, I wanted to tell you guys a little bit more about Soma Recovery. So we are a holistic mental health center that integrates psychotherapy for all different types of disorders and mental health illnesses. And all of us are connected by having a trauma-based lens or practice that we also use. So that when clients need to really dig deep into the roots of their mental health issue, they can do that and explore that with us. We also have yoga therapists and trauma-informed yoga staff that help clients with with body trauma and anything that's stored in their body, as well as chronic pain and helping people to learn how to emotionally regulate and become friends again with their bodies after, you know, different journeys they've had with substance abuse, eating disorders, or just simply not feeling at peace and calm within their own bodies, which can be a struggle for all of us as humans. And we also have dietitians and nutrition counseling to help with the gut-mind connection as we know that nutrition directly impacts and communicates with our brain as well and impacts our mental health state. We have a physical therapist and importantly, we have medication management that is holistic and very well informed. I think it can be really hard to find a good psychiatrist or psychiatric nurse practitioner who really listens to your clients or person and really takes in them as a whole person and wants to hear their story, not just kind of treat them as a number and write a prescription. And we have that at Soma as well. And so I'm really excited to provide that as well. Um, Dana Eason specializes in working with eating disorders, substance abuse, PTSD, anxiety, depression. Um, She's worked with obsessive compulsive disorder and all sorts of different mental health illnesses. So we are so lucky to have her. If you guys want any additional information, we have plenty of blogs and resources and information on our website at somawichita.com. And feel free to contact me as I would love to connect with anybody here or elsewhere that would just like to learn more information and get connected. All right. I hope you guys had a really good time with that podcast and we will talk next time.